Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And we would like to welcome all of our listeners to our first inaugural episode of Gill Group. We're going to be talking about the life of John Gill later in this conversation, but I want to uh, welcome uh Brother Dewey Doval and Brother Jimmy Johnson, our regular co-hosts, or in Jimmy's circumstance, perhaps not so regular, our irregular co-hosts. And we also have the privilege to have Pastor Ken Glitch with us today. Welcome, brothers. Hello. Uh, I I sent out an original sketch, and I, I said that I was going to be introducing us and talking a little bit about what we're doing first, but... Uh, we're going to try to be a little bit more spontaneous in these conversations in Gill Group. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit more fun and a uh, little bit more banter-ish. So I'm going to switch the order up and uh, ask Pastor Ken if he'll begin the conversation by introducing himself to our audience since he's never been on before. Well, absolutely. Um, it's such an honor to to join you guys this afternoon. It's it feels a little surreal for me because I've listened to the Covenant podcast for so long, and I know it's your tradition uh, whenever you have someone new on the show to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. So now it's it's kind of uh, fun for me to be in that hot seat, so to speak. But uh, thank you so much, guys, for the invitation to talk about a man that I greatly appreciate, one of my heroes that being dead yet speaks, John Gill. Uh, I have the privilege of pastoring Christ Fellowship, particular Baptist chapel in Paris, Tennessee. I'm married to Abigail. We have one son, and his name, shocker, is John Keach, named after uh, the man himself, and uh, also named after Benjamin Keach. And I'm also privileged to serve as the director of donor relations for particular Baptist heritage books. And I know your listeners are familiar with that ministry. Uh, our founder, Doug Barger, has been on, I know, at least one episode with you. And we're doing right now, we're coming out with nine volumes of Gill's Complete Works, everything but his commentaries. Uh, we're looking to reprint and a modern typeset. Volumes one and two are already out. So Gill is someone who's just had a huge impact on me and someone I appreciate very much. And someone who I think is perhaps a bit misunderstood uh, amongst a lot of modern scholars. So looking forward very much to having some fun, but also some thoughtful conversations about him in these series of episodes. Amen. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of uh, episodes called Gill Group in the future, Lord willing. Perhaps we'll um, get some Gill scholars on. We've had some in the past before we officially had this sub-show called Gill Group. And it'll be interesting, brothers, perhaps to have conversations with brothers who have disagreements about Gill. Uh, obviously, you know the major ones, whether he was or wasn't a hyper-Calvinist, uh, his thoughts on an offer of the gospel, whether there should be one, things like that, uh, more controversial issues like eternal justification. And Lord willing, we'll get to those conversations and we'll have... Mm -hmm educated and knowledgeable men on uh, to to join us in Gill Group, perhaps. Uh, but in this first conversation, we're just, we're going to talk about his life uh, primarily. But before we do, let me just talk a little bit more about what we're doing in this sub show since it is new and uh, why we're doing it. Um, many of our listeners have probably listened to the Reform Forum, and we appreciate the work that they do, although not uh, Presbyterians, OPC. We are uh, Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists, Baptists that hold to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we have drawn some inspiration from them. They have Van Til Group, where they talk about uh, Van Til's uh, systematic theology and apologetics. They have Voss Group, where they talk about biblical theology. And uh, Dewey would probably know the best between the four of us how many they've... Uh, episodes they've done <laughs> how do you know Dewey? i mean they've I done know, off the top of my head i i believe they've been going on though for like eight or nine years now okay. so just about every week for eight or nine years they've released a new episode or if they uh or not every week i think every month uh, rather every month they release a new episode but yeah uh, boss group is fantastic and van till groups 
relatively new, but um, as you were saying, Austin, phenomenal resources being produced by our brothers over at Reform mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that they do an interesting job in the OPC of uh, getting people interested in the figures within their own specific theological tradition. Uh, I think Voss can uh, or should be studied by people from different traditions, although we're not uh, OPC. We can benefit from the readings of Voss. And we hope that by having a Gill group, uh, people like Dr. Tipton and uh, people like Dr. Busey will benefit from the writings of John Gill. Perhaps we won't directly influence them, but people like that uh, that aren't directly in our particular Baptist tradition uh, can benefit from his writings. So, yeah, we're going to have a sub-show within a show where we release an episode once every two months, perhaps, once every two and a half months. Uh, it could be sporadic. They could be more frequently. Uh, and we're going to start with a biography. So uh, that's what we're doing. I'll let Dewey continue to bring our conversation along. Yeah, uh, I know that as we transition into uh, more of our discussion for today's episode, each of us wanted to take some time to share how we came to know about John Gill, how we came to appreciate John Gill. In fact, Austin, just piggybacking off of what you said just a few moments uh, ago, some of our listeners may be interested uh, to hear that some of Dr. Tipton's work on um, the son being Otto Theos or, or God mm-hmm. of himself, uh, he draws from John Gill as one of his yeah. sources uh, to show the, the the Reformed and post-Reformed understanding of the doctrine of Otto Theos. So uh, perhaps we can talk about that at a later point in our Gill group. But in terms of how I came to know about Gill and, and how I have come to appreciate him over uh, the last few years. I remember for the longest time as I was starting to get acquainted with Reformed theology, particularly the doctrines of grace, I would see John Calvin, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, and other free commentaries online, uh, commentaries about particular passages of scripture that I was wanting to, to do a deeper dive on. And I saw John Gill and, and thought that Gill was helpful, but didn't really take the time to study him anymore in depth or to, to learn about who he was. And it wasn't until 2020 that I got my first introduction to Gill, uh, to his life and to his thought. I was taking a historical theology course in my Master of Theology program and was assigned to write a paper on a character from Baptist history. And for some reason or another, I decided to do my research paper on Gill. I remember that I had had seen his name several times with various passages of scripture that I was studying uh, and, and using his commentaries to help me better understand those passages. So I began to get acquainted with Gill by writing that paper and learn more about his life and his theology. And as Ken said just a few moments ago, I view John Gill with the highest level of esteem. He's had a tremendous impact on on me, not only in terms of better understanding the scriptures, but also better understanding some of the finer and and more complex nuances of theology. I actually had the privilege of taking a cohort that was led by Dr. Michael Haken on the life and ministry of John Gill. And that was such a rewarding experience to do. Um, So all that to say, as we launch into Gill Group and as we have opportunity to dive into uh, the life and thought and ministry of John Gill. I am so excited. I think it's going to be a great blessing to us on this panel. And I really do hope and pray it'll be a blessing to all of our listeners as well. So having kicked off our, our talk on our appreciation for Gill, uh, Austin, Jimmy, Ken, I know Ken, you've talked a little bit already about your appreciation for Gill, but uh, feel free to share some of your testimonies of how Gill's impacted you guys. I'll go ahead and give my my thoughts on Gill. Um, my first interaction with John Gill was very much like Dewey's, it sounds like. I mean, looking up commentaries and things like that for the regular preaching of the word. Um, I interacted with him a lot in, in my studies for sermons and things of that nature and noticed right away that this man had a command of the biblical languages as well as numerous other languages. And I found that to be 
interesting as that is an area that I've always, I've loved studying the biblical languages in particular. Um, so that's kind of how I first got introduced to him. And as I read him more and more, um, got introduced to his theology, read through several of his sermons and, and learned more and more about his life and, and thought as well as his ministry there and the legacy that he had throughout not just his own lifetime, but even Baptist after him, the impact that he had. Another introduction I really had to him that probably spurred my area of interest was I took a class on another Baptist, Andrew Fuller, um, who who disagreed with Gill or or thought he disagreed with Gill at least on on very many many things. Um, so. I, I decided that I would try and figure out what Gil thought as in light of those discussions in my class on Andrew Fuller and things of that nature. And just have had the privilege to own his works on Lagos, to read them in what little free time I have, and to nerd out about Gil and Gil thought to friends like Austin and, and Dewey in particular. Every time I'm going through his commentary, and, and we'll probably discuss this at one point in time, Gil has a, a knack, I guess you would call it, for figuring out a way to make any passage talk in a negative manner about the Roman Catholic Church. So in, in lieu of Reformation Day, um, John Gill should be someone who we, we celebrate because he is about as anti-Roman Catholic as you possibly can get. And, and some of them, I mean, I find somewhat humorous how he gets there, and I don't necessarily agree with this particular line of thought on a given text, although I do agree with many of his conclusions as it pertains to the Roman Catholic Church in particular. So it's always nice when you can read the works of someone who's gone before you, long before you, and you can even begin to pick up little elements of their personality um, and, and what mm -hmm. makes them unique um, as a person, as a pastor, as a theologian. I'll mention some things. I mean, he, he preached the funerals of both his wife and, and his daughter. Um, so, I mean, he, he was a man and not just a thinker. So Gil is someone who I've, I've come to appreciate, um, in many facets of his life and not just his writing. So I just admire him and, and esteem him like the others have mentioned as one of my Baptist heroes. I'll, I'll go next and I'll be a little bit more brief, uh, since Dewey and Ken will transition us to a new subject after I go, I think, unless Ken wants to talk a little bit more after me which is completely okay, brother. Feel free to do that if you want to. Um, I, I remember trying to learn to preach expositionally and having uh, a lot of questions about sermon preparation and things like covenant theology uh, and being helped by my friend, Jimmy Johnson, who is actually here with us today. I'm so pleasantly surprised to see you, brother Jimmy. Um, but I remember learning, trying to learn to preach expositionally and uh, asking Brother Jimmy for recommendations on commentary. And he told me that he tries never to preach a sermon without first consulting John Gill's commentaries. And that was pretty like, whoa, if you're going to check what that dude says every single time you're going to preach just to make sure uh, there must be something important about him. And I mean, it's it's impressive that we have a Baptist, a Calvinistic Baptist uh, with a lot of overlap with much of what we would believe today from the Second London Confession of Faith. A lot of overlap. A man who has written a verse on or a commentary on every verse of the mm -hmm. Bible. Um, there are there are few men that have ever done that. And uh, we're glad to have a man in our tradition. So just uh, having him as a resource, knowing that he wrote a commentary on every verse of the Bible that I could go to every time I'm preparing a sermon, mm -hmm. allowed me to greatly appreciate him. And then later, uh, took a class at CBTS. Uh, I think that was the moment that I officially got what I call bit with the Baptist bug. Uh, whenever and like you're the that, only one that calls it that. So just to, <laughs> just to clarify. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I might've, I might've heard someone else say something similar to that, but okay. If I'm the only one that calls it that I'm the only one that calls it that I got 
bit with the Baptist bug, meaning the importance and the value of Baptist church history really gripped me uh, through that class with Benjamin Keach. So I wanted to know who succeeded him and uh, who he was friends with and various things happening in the 17th century, various things happening in the 18th century. So uh, that's whenever I started studying John Gill and got a lot of good uh, pointers from people like Jimmy and then Dewey, I think, wrote uh, that paper and then later published it on our blog, if I'm not mistaken, Covenant Confessions a couple of years ago. He did. So, yeah, uh, I guess they're trying to, to preach through the scriptures and seeing that there's a faithful brother that has done this before us greatly uh, grasped my interest in him. Ken, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you guys are all echoing the tremendous commentaries that that Gill has produced, and certainly that is how most people are introduced to Gill. Uh, you know, the the joke about the commentaries is uh, sometimes if you're in a hurry, the best thing to do is read them backwards. And if if anybody reads Gill's commentaries, they know exactly what I mean because so often Gill will say, "Now this verse doesn't mean this, and doesn't mean this, and doesn't mean this, and doesn't mean this," and then finally he gets to the end of his you know, 35 sentence long paragraph and says, but it does mean this, you know, um, and, and I certainly appreciate Gil's commentaries, but I got to be honest, what I, what I really love about Gil or his other writings um, uh, beside his commentaries, uh, I, I think the most time I've spent with Gil is probably with his um, doctrinal divinity, reading through that. It was really the first systematic that I, that I decided to, to read through and, um, I don't really remember a time in which I wasn't aware of Gill. Even before I, I was, I started Bible college. I, I always um, had Gill as somebody on the shelf that that I would go to. I, maybe it's because I've always had a, a a fascination for the the guys in the shadows, so to speak. So you know, I I don't want to take anything away from say Charles Spurgeon. We all appreciate Spurgeon, and certainly there's much to be appreciated there. But guys like Spurgeon. Uh, guys like Calvin, who I, I love very much, oftentimes they'll cast a shadow that keeps other men in the dark. And I, I think Gill's one of those guys that's kind of been in the dark. And a lot of guys um, who could go on and on about Spurgeon would have trouble telling you a whole lot about about Gill. So when Austin told me that that the the Covenant podcast was going to launch a Gill group, I was I was super thrilled to to hear that because he's somebody that really needs to be more widely read. That's you, Dewey. Okay. Well, uh, praise the Lord for how Gil has shaped each of us and the impact that he's had on us. Um, let's talk about objectives. Let's talk about our, our goals for ourselves and for our listeners to have as we launch into future episodes of Gil Group. And I, I made a little list here of, uh, and it really is a little list. It's only three, uh, three objectives that I have that I would like for our listeners to to uh, obtain from their time that they invest to hear us talk about the work of Gil. And hopefully these are also objectives that each of us keep in mind as we work through his writings in the future. Uh, I'd imagine we probably have different demographics of listeners. You probably have academically minded listeners, pastorally minded listeners, and then just godly lay people who are interested in niche aspects of theology. So if you're here listening to this episode and future episodes and you, you probably fall into the academically minded category, my objective for you would be to just dig into everything that we're going to be covering regarding John Gill. There's a reason why he got the nickname Dr. Voluminous. Uh, mm. he, he was a just deep thinker. You read his commentaries, you read his body of divinity, you read many of his other works you are going to find treatments of classical Christian theism uh, rooted in the great tradition, Hebrew and Greek exegesis, covenant theology, doctrines of grace. Uh, my personal favorite, I love Gill's work on eschatology, though I don't necessarily, let me point out, uh, I don't agree with all of his conclusions uh, about the Roman Catholic Church and some of these eschatological writings. Uh, I do love his treatments on passages like the Olivet Discourse. So uh, Gil's going to definitely scratch mm -hmm. the academic itch if you have that um, you have that inclination. And I, I, for one, take the position that Gil was probably 
the greatest Baptist thinker that has ever lived. And mm. I may dispute that, but in terms of the body of literature that he produced and the, the level of thinking that he exhibited in his works, I, I think that there's just not another Baptist that can rival Gill. But maybe you're here listening to the, the shows and you're more pastorally minded, you're, you're more practically minded, um, involved in ministry, but maybe not thinking through the contours of autothean personhood or eternal generation, uh, thinking through um, eternal justification and, and, and what's problematic about that or hyper-Calvinism. Maybe those things aren't immersed into your mind uh, or at least have never been immersed into your mind at, at this point, but you are interested in becoming a, a better pastor or a better preacher mm -hmm. of God's word. Uh, as Jimmy mentioned, Gil was a man. I mean, he he preached at the same church for over 50 years. It would eventually be the, the church that Spurgeon would pastor, teach, of course, being Gil's predecessor. Gil faithfully preached God's word. Uh, he faced trials and tribulations that came about as a result of being in ministry for as long as he was. Uh, Gil was a man who was committed to scripture. He had a towering intellect, but he frequently cites scripture after scripture after scripture as he gets into the weeds of some of these deeper subjects. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Gill was a, a man who engaged in philosophical or speculative theology and, and barely cited passages of scripture to support his conclusions. I find in Gill a man who was a true pastor scholar. He desired to educate ordinary Christians in the basics and in the deep truths even of Christianity. But he also was able to go deep without losing the the tie to scripture or the the grounding in scripture as he dealt with some of the more complex issues. So if you're pastorally minded, uh, if you're a pastor or an aspiring pastor, uh, Gil has something to offer you in preparing you for ministry or helping you continue to be faithful in your current ministry context. And then maybe you're here and you're a godly layperson. Um, I'm sure we have several who fall into this category. You just enjoy hearing some of the, the niche subjects that we cover on the Covenant Podcast. And if that's you, we're so grateful you're here. I, my objective for you, in addition to what I've already said, I, I really think that uh, you're going to see something of Gil's piety mm. uh, as we work through his writings. We all should strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have uh, been bestowed with. We should live in a way that reflects the authenticity of our faith. And Gil did this for uh, the totality of his life and ministry. He was a faithful husband. He was married for over four decades. Um, he was uh, so he, he had to experience miscarriages, hardships, persecution for his faith and for some of the stances that he took. But all the while, Gil remained committed to modeling just ordinary, faithful, day-by-day -day Christian living. And I think there's something to be said for that. Maybe that's the most important objective or takeaway that we can have as we study Gill. That this was a man, though he was a sinner saved by the grace of God like we are. Uh, Gill was also somebody who truly sought to get out of the ivory tower, do the hard work of daily, ordinary, faithful Christian living, and to bring other believers along the way as he modeled what that looks like at the practical level. So um, those are kind of my objectives that I have for our listeners, certainly what I would hope to um, experience and benefit from as one of the panelists here. But uh, Ken, if you have anything you want to add or Austin, please feel free to do so. Yeah, Dewey, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of gave that full orbed view of John Gill. I think a lot of people, they think of Gill as, as what you just said, kind of an ivory tower scholar who's maybe inaccessible to, to just the I don't like using the term average Christian, sure. you know, but, but someone who's not in the academy, someone who's not in the pastorate, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this on the first episode, but I'll drop my, I'll drop my Gill hypothesis. Okay. Well, my, my Gill hypothesis is, is this, a lot of people have this view of Gill that he's this cold, more harsh, and certainly in his writings, he's, he, he comes across a little sharp at times, but you have to remember that Gill was a man who was beyond educated for a, a nonconformist Baptist in his day. He was denied access to formal education, and so he educated himself. 
Um, the the saying, you know, that in, in the town where he grew up, people would say, as sure as little John Gill is in the bookshop, you know, when they would when they would talk about how certain something is, you know. Uh, and and so he was he was just masterfully self-educated. And as a Baptist, he was often called upon to answer and write polemically to conflicts that were coming up. In John Rippon's memoirs, he talks about how even in the New World, even in the colonies, as the colonial Baptists, early colonial Baptists were facing theological controversy, they would write back to England and, and ask John Gill, hey, would you read this and write a response to it? And um, a lot of his most well-known works, like The Cause of God and Truth, are just that. They're responses to things he was asked to combat. And when you're writing polemically, you do tend to have a bit of an edge or a bit of a sharp tone in a lot of your writings. Uh, you brothers have mentioned some of Gill's uh, sentiments on the uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I might be the only panelist that would actually agree with, with Gill's eschatological conclusion on Rome that it is uh, the Antichrist, you know, Roman or, or our, our confession, chapter uh, 26, four, you know, um, Gill would, would certainly confess that wholeheartedly. Uh, but there are other writings that are not polemical. And so people that are looking for that more pastoral, pietistic, practical side of Gill, uh, read his sermons, read his, read his letters uh, that, that he put out, um, read his exposition of Song of Solomon, which is not necessarily part of the commentary set, but it was actually the, the first major work he ever published. And it is extremely Christocentric and it's extremely warm. And he's not trying to grind an axe or or defeat the Arminians like he is in a lot of his writings. And so I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up, uh, Dewey, because certainly I, I I don't know this. No, none of us know this, but I think that's how he would like to be remembered. I, I don't think he would want to be remembered as a theological controversialist. I think if you were to ask John Gill, what would you like a 2023 audience to know about you? I think it would be just what you said. I, I'm a pastor of one of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I am a sinner saved by grace, uh, and I love Jesus Christ and the things of God and the people that I have the privilege of shepherding. And so I, I'm, I'm looking forward, as Dewey said, to look into some of those more practical aspects of the life and ministry of Gil. Amen. Hmm. It is hard to reduce Gill to a cold ivory tower intellectual whenever you read some of his sermons, like you brothers have mentioned, especially right. his funeral sermon that he preached for his daughter. You see warm, felt, experiential, leaning and trusting on the Lord in, in that message. Um, well, we've, we've gone on for about 30 minutes. Uh, I'm not sure how long we'll make these Gill groups uh, in the future. If we're drawing inspiration from the Reform Forum, then we'll go for around an hour. And if not, then we'll go for however long we feel like it. But uh, I'll ask Jimmy now. Uh, a lot of this episode, we wanted to spend some time giving a biographical sketch. That's what we said we were going to do at the beginning of this conversation. So, uh, Jimmy, would you give us now a biography of John Gill? Yeah, of of course I will. Um, it's worth saying that many of the things that have been been mentioned and some of the quotes about John Gill, as well as the sermon referenced about his daughter, they'll show up in this biographical sketch. Um, many of these dates that that I'll be stating, they can be found in a lot of the works that have been published on Gill. Um, but the one that I consulted for Austin McCormick Shame is is this very rare book, The Life and Thought of John Gill, edited so, by you know, Michael which, Haken. Which kidney did you sell to buy that book? I got that book for $20. How did you do that? <laughs> Some guy didn't know what he was selling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, much of the dates and times come from that book. And it is a wonderful book if you can get your hands on it. I don't know if it's necessarily worth the expensive price, but I have profited from it. A bunch. Yeah, for, but, for the listeners that aren't necessarily uh, book addicts, that, that book is, is published by Brill Academic Press. So it's an academic publishing house and it's out of print. You can buy the PDF for like 160 bucks, the PDF download. And then to get the physical book, what you have is just hundreds of dollars. So 
uh, that's that's neat that you have one in the flesh, brother. Well, and and I have shamed Austin with my possession of it for a long time. Um, so now, listeners, you are on the inside joke on the inside of it but getting into the sketch of gill's life which is much more important than than any rare book um he was born in 1697 uh he was born to edward and elizabeth gill on november 23rd in kettering northamptonshire for those who are interested in baptist history they'll notice that there are other baptist figures one in particular that has ties to that area of england uh, John's parents were a part of the Baptist church that formed out of a dissenting church in that area. It actually was a church that at first included Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists, but eventually there was a breakaway called the Little Meeting, which was made up of Baptists. Edward, John's father, was eventually elected as a deacon at the Baptist congregation, uh, which was later pastored by the man who I was alluding to earlier, Andrew Fuller. Mm. John was known as a bright young man, super intelligent by those who, who knew him. And as it was said, he, he was barred from formal education, I believe after the age of 11 or, or right around that time. He, he was able to be formally trained up to that point, had shown great facility and and i believe it was greek and latin at that point in time but he was barred because he was a dissenter he was a baptist and not a part of the anglican communion so he could not continue in his formal training so he did study on his own and there was a bookshop that was in the community in which he lived and it was said commonly in the community that as sure as john gill is in the bookseller shop any other event and its certainty would be tied to that because he was so often in there. Speed ahead a little bit to 1709, John was converted under the preaching of William Wallace, his pastor, not, not the famous Scotsman William Wallace, but another William Wallace. And he was preaching out of Genesis 3, verse 9. And the text was this, it said, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And William Wallace seemed to draw or drive home this point of where the sinner is and, and what state the sinner finds themselves in. And this sermon, or God, through this sermon, cut John Gill to the heart. And though he did not profess faith publicly until a later date, this seems to be the point in which John Gill was converted. Now, 1716, Several years later, at the age of 19, John Gill finally makes his public profession of faith and was baptized by Thomas Wallace, who was William Wallace's son. In 1717, just a year later, John assists a pastor by the name of John Davis in his pastoral work and preaching at Higgum Ferrers. And I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but probably not. Him. <laughs> probably not knowing it's me who's pronouncing it. Um, but at this place, he meets someone very important. He meets his wife, Elizabeth, there. And a year later, John, in 1718, marries Elizabeth, and they move back to Kettering. And John continued the work of ministry, his work of ministry there. In 1719, John Gill receives a call to come and preach um, and, and offer pulpit supply at Go Goat Yard Chapel, at Horse Lie Down, Southwark. After some deliberation and opposition, Gill receives a call to come and be the preacher and pastor of that church at Horse Lie Down. He, he would be received into membership at a later date after that, after a trial period. In 1720, he's officially recognized as pastor at the Goat Yard Chapel in Horse Lie Down. Now, in 1723, very early in his ministry, there is opposition to Gill that involves some leaving the church, including Baptist historian Thomas Crosby, who some will know, our listeners will know, and also the relatives of Benjamin Keach, who at one point, not much before, preceded Gill as pastor in that congregation. In 1724, John Gill's prolific writing career begins to take off and he publishes a sermon titled the glory of god's grace displayed and it's abounding over the aboundings of sin 
And this was a funeral sermon, and that would be his first publication. In 1726 through 1727, he also baptized a seri series of pamphlets on the doctrine of baptism and particularly on the mode of baptism, not just the candidates, but debating some articles, one anonymous and the ones following it were not anonymous, but contradicting and arguing against articles that were trying to argue for other modes of baptism. In 1728, the work that has already been mentioned, John Gill's most popular work, perhaps in his day, his exposition of the Song of Solomon was published. And I will echo, having read through that, it, it is a rich, rich exposition. Um, and and you, it is Christocentric. It, the church finds its appearance throughout it. And Christ's love for the church is, is argued clearly and surmised clearly is a wonderful work that I would recommend if you want to see the man Gill and not just the controversialist. Also in 1729, Gill writes a new confession of faith and, and persuades the church there at Horsefly Down to accept it. And the most significant changes um, are, are on the headings of justification and things of that nature. He also began in this year to and again, my pronunciation is terrible, so everyone can laugh if I get this wrong. Um, he also began the great East Cheap lectures, um, which he continued almost all the way until his death. He, he, he definitely spent time in those lectures and out of those lectures, many of the books and many of the controversial tracks um, would come originally from those lectures. Um, in 1730, he began another lectureship at Lime Street. He, he published a work on the doctrine of justification by the righteousness of Christ stated and maintained. Um, and this publication, or publication began a debate between Gill and another lecturer by the name of Abraham Taylor. In 1731, Gill publishes a work on the doctrine of the Trinity in which he defends the classical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, as there were many in Gill's day at this time that began to deny it, and Arianism became, unfortunately, all too common amongst some of the churchmen of Gill's day. In 1732, Gill continues his controversy with Abraham Taylor, which seems to center around um, the Doctrines of Grace, as this work is titled, The Doctrines of God's Everlasting Love to His Elect in Their Eternal Union with Christ. In 1735 through 1738, this idea of Gill defending Calvinism is probably most apparent as he publishes The Cause of God and Truth, and this was in several different installments. It is a, a very good work. Um, one of the most interesting parts of this work, and this is not necessarily a sketch of biography, but more so an observation, is in one of the volumes, it is Gill just going back to the church fathers um, and quoting them at length, translating them from their original language and quoting them at length to support the idea that the doctrines of grace that we, we find dear and love are actually rooted within the broader tradition of the Christian faith. They're ultimately rooted in scripture, but they have shown up um, throughout church history. So in 1738, um, John's daughter, Elizabeth, dies at the age of 13. And he preached this text on 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14, which says, but I would have you, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And he began his sermon with these words. He says, and I quote, I need not tell you what is the occasion of my reading these words to you as at this time. This is done not so much on your account as on my own. You must permit me this afternoon to preach rather to myself and family than to you, though I hope what may be delivered may be of some service among you also. And that's a taste from, from that sermon. It is a wonderful sermon that I would recommend if you 
if you read anything by Gill, that that is one of the places that you should go because it is a beautiful work and you see um, a love for Christ manifested and the hope that we have in Christ, even in the face of great tragedy. In 1739, Gill publishes another pamphlet against Abraham Taylor, The Necessity of Good Works Unto Salvation Considered. In 1746 through 1748, Gill publishes his exposition of the New Testament in three volumes. And in the wake of that, in 1748, Gill receives an honorary doctorate of divinity from Aberdeen University at one of the colleges there in appreciation for the amount of study that went into that work. In 1752, probably a more interesting aspect of Gill's life, he barely escapes death when a stack of chimneys crashes through the roof of his study. Um, But even after that, almost death, he publishes several works like The Doctrine of Saints, The Saints' Final Perseverance, asserted and vindicated, and then also the predestination or the doctrine of predestination stated and set in scripture light. And both of those works were written actually to to argue against the teachings of a very, very popular Methodist preacher by the name of John Wesley. Most of us have heard of him. John Gill had several interactions with Wesley, and they kind of had a back and forth at one point. In 1755, Gill publishes 52 sermons of Tobias Crisp and also wrote a a memoir to him or or of him, rather, of Tobias Crisp, which Tobias Crisp will come up in later discussions on some of John Gill's theology. Um, More will be said about him at a later time. In 1756, Gill ends his lectureship at the Great East Sheep with a sermon titled The Agreement of the Old and New Testament, which is also a very good sermon I would recommend reading. In 1757 through 1758, Gill publishes his exposition of the books of the prophets of the Old Testament, both larger and lesser. In 1757, his church also moves to a new chapel at Carter Lane and Southwark. In 1763 through 1766, Gill publishes the rest of his exposition of the Old Testament, meaning that he, at this point, had written commentary on every individual verse in the Bible. And and I believe this is correct, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Gill is the first one in the English language to write a complete commentary on every verse in the Bible. Um, There are other commentators that would, um, but even I believe Matthew Henry did not have the opportunity to complete his own commentary. Um, Any thought on that before I go on and just assume I'm correct? I know. Right, brother. Yeah. And and, um, first, and uh, I almost want to say first and only, in the sense that he didn't section out his commentary, like Henry's commentary, you know, will cover um, Genesis chapter one, and then he'll he'll write a few things about verses one through eight. Whereas Gill's commentary, it's one of the reasons why it's so accessible. Verse one, verse two, verse mm-hmm. three. Yeah. yeah. And and Matthew Poole's commentaries were finished posthumously as well. So, yeah. Oh, did you yeah. just say posthumously? <laughs> is, is it he something did. else? how am i supposed to say it pastor apparently austin thinks that matthew Poole's commentaries have a lot of comedic value there how do i say it posthumously it's it's when you when something is published after the death of of someone yeah (laughs) hey jimmy told me a long time ago that if you mispronounce words that you read that means that you're reading so (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's just posthumously is just really funny. Okay. And well, wrong. <laughs> and wrong. We're all going to get cut out in my editing um, skills. The perks we'll of being go ahead editor. and move on with John Gill's biography. So in 1764, while he's writing these commentaries on the Old Testament, John's wife Elizabeth dies um, at the age of 67. They had been married 46 years at the time of her death. And Gill preached on Hebrews 11, verse 16, following her death, which says this in the 
King James, it says, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. In 1765 through 1766, also during this time, John picks up the subject of baptism again um, and, and writes one titled, and here's where we can see a little bit of the spiciness of John Gill in this title. He says, Divine Baptism, a Commandment to be Observed, and then another work called Infant Baptism, a Part and Pillar of Popery. Um, so writing against infant ba baptism, not just merely the mode of baptism. In 1768, Gill publishes his second edition of his treatise on the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as another tract, a dissertation concerning the eternal sonship of Christ. In 1769 through 1770, Gill publishes the his work, A Body of practical and or doctrinal and practical divinity and then in 1771 gill dies on october 14th at his own <clears throat> now i want to qualify everything i've said here the sketch i've given would be incomplete if i left it as it was because it's important that we emphasize that john gill was not primarily an author of works as has been said but he was primarily a pastor who preached and shepherd his, shepherded his congregation for over 50 years. Much of his writings actually originally stemmed from his preaching ministry, either to his congregation or at the various lectureships that he had had. He was not especially known as a pastor for his visitations. That's what one author says. But when people came to him, he was known as being a hospitable man of good humor. He was considered to be a good friend. He was also considered to be a very skilled preacher. And when he would go to social gatherings, it was said by John Ryland Sr. that he was known to be an animated person at those gatherings that people wanted to be around. He was also a loving father, is reported, I believe it was by one of his nieces or nephews, um, that when his wife was sick, that Gil would frequent sit by her side and 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 shower her with tender love words and love and often leave saddened that he would not be able to be with his wife when he would go to preach because she was bedridden and then he died after a long and faithful pastorate yes he wrote a bunch he wrote a bunch of controversial works but a majority of his labors were actually in the pastorate um, and that's important for us to remember he and I, I say in light of this sketch, Gill, as as Dewey said, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find a a greater, at least in the terms of scope and depth, a greater thinker in Baptist life because he just hit so many areas and he hit them so deeply um, that I mean most Baptist, especially during Gill's lifetime and before it and after it, didn't live long enough. To, to even begin to cover what Gill himself covered. So that is John Gill in a nutshell. Much more could be said. He had many other published works, but yes. I, I just wanted to piggyback off something you said there at the very end. You mentioned that his wife was bedridden. Um, Michael Haken goes at great lengths in some talks to talk about how great of a husband he was to his wife near the end of uh, her life. He tells a story about how Gil and Gil's son-in-law, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure if this is the son-in-law who published some of his writings, uh, but Gil and his son-in-law um, built the house or purchased the house next to the house that uh, Gil and his wife owned and then um, built some type of a mechanism to where the home could be accessed from either home. You could go in and out and his his daughter uh, helped take care of his bedridden wife whenever he was unable to uh, do things because of his pastoral responsibilities. But he made great provisions to make sure that his wife was taken care of and that he could still faithfully shepherd the flock of God. And um, yeah, that's a great example of him taking care of his bedridden wife until she yeah, passed. Yeah, the they, they knocked a wall out in the second story and built a hallway 
so that mm. Will could be in his study in one house, but he, all he would have to do is just walk across the hall to, to be able to tend to his wife. So it, it's an extremely uh, heartwarming story to hear. Hmm. What other thoughts do we have, brothers, uh, about Gil's life before we begin to wrap this conversation up? Are there any Gil stories? I mean, we've talked about him as pastor. We've talked about him as thinker, theologian. We've talked about uh, Gil, the the one that can help us in practical living. What other thoughts do we have about his life? Well, I think we'll get into this as we look at his specific writings, but one of the things that I'm sure will be revealed is that Gill was one of, if not the chief means that God used in the 1700s to save the particular Baptists from veering off into orthodoxy, or into unorthodoxy. Gill was the defender of orthodoxy, especially on the optimally important doctrine of theology proper, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. Gill spent much of his time defending that doctrine in the pulpit to his own congregation, but also in writing. And, you know, uh, Jimmy mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity stated and vindicated. When I, when I took uh, a Van Til class with Dr. Tipton that does Voss group and Van Til group with Reformed Forum, the thesis that I wrote on was that the, the the three pillars of Van Til's Trinitarianism were represented centuries before in the writings of John Gill. And, uh, you know, the Salters Hall Synod in 1712, in which the Presbyterians and General Baptists formally confessed uh, Arianism and Unitarianism, uh, Gill was, was alarmed by that. And even though it would, would be almost two decades later that he would officially write on the Trinity, Gill was very alarmed at Baptists that were adopting unorthodox views on the doctrine of God. And then, of course, also Gill's writings on ecclesiology. Certainly, we we don't believe that um, someone who errs on their doctrine of baptism is in as much trouble as someone who errs on the person and work of Christ. But nevertheless, it, 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 I think uh, if, I can, if I can be so bold as to say, it's a lot more important than a lot of Baptists today realize. <laughs> and Gill certainly defended that very sternly. So um, whether you you love him or whether you have problems with him, if you're one of the guys that says, oh, you got to be careful. He's a hyper-Calvinist. Don't read too much of Gil. Even if you think that, I think you still need to appreciate the fact that one of the reasons why um, we as Reformed and particular Baptists have such a heritage in the 1700s is largely because of John Gill. You know, Spurgeon said of Gill that Gill, he blew on the coals of orthodoxy and kept kept the, the spiritual and orthodox health of the church alive so that Spurgeon's ministry, that flame could ascend. And I think the same is really true uh, even for us today, that, that Gill, in a time that was very dark for the Baptists and the Presbyterians, Gill was fanning the, the embers of orthodoxy. Uh, so, yeah, very, very helpful biographical sketch. No, I echo everything that, that Ken has said, uh, Jimmy. Fantastic biographical sketch. Um, something that that I, at least it stood out to me regarding John Gill, just balancing a, a, a desire for doctrinal purity in the church, but also pastoral care in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gill was willing to discipline a church member who held to an erroneous view of eternal generation. And he did it not because this was a, for him an airhead doctrine that uh, was just much to do about nothing, and and uh, he, he, he just was trying to beat people over the head with making sure that they had every I dot and every T crossed theologically, but that he believed that to err on that doctrine could result in the damnation of one's soul. Hmm. And he, he truly believed that theology had tremendous practical and eternal consequences as, as well as just for the sake of getting theology right to be right. He, he placed a great emphasis on making sure that the doctrine that believers held to was true in accordance with scripture, but also that it shaped the way in which their congregants mm-hmm. live. Uh, and we see that time and time again. I, I love how y'all mentioned the, the sermon that he preached for his daughter's funeral. That was one of the sermons we got to read in Haken's cohort. Mm-hmm. Incredibly moving. Um, and also for someone who is claimed to be a hyper Calvinist, which there's, there's obviously strong arguments for and against that. Um, 
even between men uh, like Nettles and, and Haken who go back and forth on, the, on that particular issue. For him to be as Christocentric as he is and something like his sermons through the Song of Solomon, um, as well as just if you read his sermons and, and you don't necessarily have all the exposure to some of his other writings, he was very Christ-centered. So uh, if, if he was truly a hyper-Calvinist, he's the most Christ-centered hyper-Calvinist that I've ever read or ever had exposure yeah. to um, and, and wanted people to know Christ and wanted people to right. be like Christ in their lifestyle. So read Gill. I'm looking forward to, to brushing up on Gill and, and reading more uh, works from Gill that I have not yet read. Like uh, many of you guys, I think all of us actually are, are preaching regularly, serving regularly, and even engaged in seminary studies. So this is a great excuse to to read leisurely and to read for edification. Uh, when in doubt, if you want to read somebody, start a podcast series on that individual, start working through their readings so you have something to say. Um, so I'm really grateful to be here with you men, and, and I hope that our listeners will join us on this journey uh, through Gill Group and that we'll be richly edified as a result, most importantly, that we would live lives that bring glory to God as we uh, learn more about Gill. Yeah, if, if this wasn't a podcast and, and Austin just said, hey, do you want to sit around and talk about John Gill uh, in the privacy of our home or whatever, I, I'd be all for it. But the fact that we're <laughs> able to put this out, I, I do hope that um, some of the those who listen regularly to this this podcast would be uh, encouraged and, and would would seek out these writings and, and read them for themselves. And that would that would really thrill my heart to, to see. Uh, Baptist reading Baptist. Uh, you know, I, I, if you look behind me, I've got Bob Inc. and Voss and, and, and all those other guys as well. But uh, Baptist reading Baptist is just a wonderful thing. So uh, I'm very, very thankful for you guys uh, coming up with this idea and, and putting it together. Jimmy, anything? I think I shared most of my thoughts through the biographical sketch. But I mean, I just echo, I, I think Gil. Uh, amongst many of our Baptist forebears is worthy of reading and, and has contributed to so many different subjects. And, and even if you don't agree with him, none of his stuff is haphazard or off the cuff. Mm. It's, it's well thought out. Much of it is rooted within our confessional heritage and in stream with that coming now again i i don't agree with every conclusion that gill ever draws but i do find myself agreeing with him quite often <laughs> um and throughout his works on on a whole array of subjects so yeah i mean i'd recommend reading gill and and i also recommend reading his commentaries backwards um, yeah. it, I think it's even worse than what Ken says because John Gill doesn't always say what views he thinks is wrong. He just goes through like 50 views and then you yeah. eventually figure out, oh, he agrees maybe with the last one. Right. <laughs> yeah. does, there, there are some things that he, he doesn't take a direct stand on, um, which for us can be infuriating, but at the same time it showed a level of, um, hermeneutical humility mm. when he came yeah. to specific passages that he will state views he does definitely disagree with and state them accurately even like it's almost right. persuasive the way that he he puts a view that he doesn't agree with right. um and then there are other times where on particularly some of those harder difficult texts we know they're there um, but those more difficult texts where there's a wide array of disagreement, Gill doesn't necessarily give you exactly where he stands on it, but gives you two potential good yeah. options. Um, so I think Gill is one that will definitely stimulate your interpretive abilities to a degree that you wouldn't be able to have them stimulated without reading him. And, and that's one of the reasons why I do think he's one of the best commentators that you can read because he drives you to the text and, mm -hmm. and makes you really wrestle with it and other potential interpretations. And if you like semicolons, uh, read yes. Gill. You'll, you'll start using them a lot. Your sentences will get very, very lengthy. Uh, and, and keep it yeah, up. if you're allergic to periods, Gill is your man. And if, you, if you're ever studying out a text and the thought just pops in your mind, I wonder what the ancient Egyptian Syriac text says about this verse or how it translates it. <laughs> Look at Gil. Right. Or if you wonder uh, what ancient rabbis have to say, 
I mean, yeah, Gil, Gil that's a that, that we haven't mentioned yet in this episode, but he wrote an antiquity of the Hebrew language, you know, which mm-hmm. is uh, I, I was talking to a, a pastor friend um, who's who's also a, a lover of Gill, and he said that was his introduction to Gill. <laughs> wow. Gill's antiquity of the Hebrew language before he knew he had a commentary or anything like that. So uh, I love hearing stories like that because it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> You should, because that's a weird work to get introduced on yeah. Gil on. That Most guy people would weird. probably never read again. Well, guys, it has been a delight to talk with y'all for this very first episode of Gil Group. I pray that we have many more such episodes in the future together as we sharpen one another and hopefully our listeners uh, drinking from the well and the treasure trove of truth that, that John Gill has to offer. So to our listeners, we do thank you for your continued support of the Covenant podcast and now of Gill Group. And until next time, we do wish you grace and peace. God bless.